Have you ever lost something? If you have it, you're lying. Um, no, we do. In fact, there's a whole industry for this, right? You can get little RFID tags for your stuff and put them all over your stuff and with your smartphone, find it. And it, it's, it's very helpful. I remember losing something once. His name was Jeffrey. Perhaps that rises above losing your keys. Uh, And I think I've told a little bit of this story before, but it fits so well with our text today. We were at um, the the Children's Museum or the the Science Museum over here by Main Place. And underneath the Discovery, thank you, underneath the dinosaur thing. And there's a cave down there. And and it was was me with my two boys. A great day, right? Dad and sons together. And mom was trusting me to actually bring both home. And um, it, it was great. And we're going through the dinosaurs there. And I'm like, hey, let's go under the cave. There's some things to see. And I turn around and Jeffrey is gone. I know I'm using names. One of my kids, no, (laughs) well, you know, it wouldn't be the one that's in here. So that narrows it down if it's sons. Um, And and Jeffrey is just gone. And I'm like, where is he? And I don't know as a parent, if you've experienced that, there is a moment of panic that is hard to describe. Uh, Not quite at first. You're like, oh, he's just up there. And you go up there and there's no child up there. And you start to look around And at that point, my heart starts to beat faster. I'm like, what is going on? I am missing a child, and this is not good, I've heard. And um, (laughs) and, and my other son is that, I don't know where he is, Dad. He's helping me look, and we are going all over. And at this point now, I've covered the entire outdoor area of the, the museum there. And no Jeffrey. And you can bet that I am almost at a run at this point, going from place to place, trying to figure out where he is and going inside. And and as as a parent in this day and age, you know some of the things that were going through my head. And did someone take him or or what happened? And and it it turns out everything turned out okay, as you know, because you've seen him recently. Um, it, It turns out a worker came to me and said, are you looking for your son? I said, yes, he's gone, he's lost, and, and, and I'm a little bit uh, more um, heightened awareness at this point and heightened emotions. He says, no, we have him, it's okay. We have him in the office, and, and what happened is just at that moment, he had gotten separated, and the worker came by, and the, I, I don't even know how it happened so quickly, but the worker noticed he didn't have a parent and took him into the office, and so that whole time, while I'm searching frantically, he's in the office sipping a water and just enjoying life. But that search, that, that intensity of that search leads us into our text today because that is the same intensity and the same passion that God has when he searches for those that have wandered from him. The, the same passion that he has for the lost that haven't accepted him. For us, when we wander away from him, his heart aches and he longs for us and he searches after us and seeks us and pursues us because he wants a relationship with us. He wants his son and his daughter and his family. You know, my, my story had a, a happy ending, but unfortunately not everyone turns back to Christ and, and not everyone turns to Christ, but God continues to pursue. This morning as we come to our text and we're still on our way from Galilee to Jerusalem and Jesus is heading to the cross and he's using this journey as an opportunity to talk about what going to the cross means and what discipleship means and what it means to follow him. 
and he uses Luke chapter 15 to confront the Pharisees about their heart and actually to confront all of us about our heart to seek the lost, to search for the lost. Where is our passion? Do we have the Father's heart or do we have the Pharisee's heart? And so he will use three stories this morning, three lost and found parables to, to bring the same point home over and over and over. And it's going to be the Father that searches for us like I was searching for Jeffrey and the Father that rejoices greatly when we are found. Just like when I found Jeffrey that day, man, that hug had to be a little tighter and the, the joy uh, a little more profound because my son was lost and now he was found. And that's what we come to Luke 15 with. Turn there with me if you, if in your Bibles, Luke chapter 15. If you don't have one, there's a black Bible under a chair right around you. Please grab that, open it up to to the New Testament. About three quarters of the way through, you'll find Luke in Luke chapter 15. We're going to go through the whole chapter today because Jesus taught this as a unit. And so the, the three parables Jesus used to pile on story after story after story to make a point. Now, by the end of the day, you might say, man, it seems like Pastor Ron made the same point three times. Yep. That's what's going to happen today. And so I'm just going to warn you about that because that's what Jesus did. And I'm not going to pull out like different illustrations or different lessons than what he did. He is using the same story to progressively make a a deeper and deeper application of the same thought. And for those of you that, that want that thought right up front, here's the thing. God relentlessly pursues those that are lost and he rejoices when they are found. And we should do the same. God relentlessly goes above and beyond to pursue those that are lost and and then rejoices with exuberant joy when they are found. And we as his servants, as his ambassadors, as disciples should do the same thing. So at the top of your notes, you see, like God, we should pursue sinners and welcome them with joy when they come to him. And if you look at every story and say, how does it show that principle? You've got the morning. So pretty straightforward. That's where we're going. So let's look at the, the situation. In verses 1 and 2, we have what was happening around that, that necessitated this teaching that caused Jesus to go there. And, and so number one in your notes, the situation, intentionally connecting with the lost. In verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near him. And that right there is red flags all over the place for the Pharisees. If you remember our conversations about the tax collectors, these were hated, despicable human beings. These were Jews that were sellouts that had betrayed their Jewish heritage, made deals with the Romans, sold their souls to the Romans for the rights to collect taxes. And then they would collect two, three, four times the amount of taxes so they could live nicely, live well. They would prey on their own people on behalf of the Romans for their own interests. Yeah, great people. And, and these are the people that it says were drawing near to Jesus. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. There's a couple of things there. You, you see that Jesus is intentionally building relationships with those that need him. He is, he is intentionally building these relationships. The next verse. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, now, chances are, if someone said that to you today at lunch, you'd be like, so? But for, for Jesus and for the time, this was a huge insult. 
the word for receive there is to accept. It's more than just say hi. It's to accept into your circle of friends, to accept into your relationships. He receives them. He builds relationship with them and he eats with them. And you've heard us talk about table fellowship in the Middle East to eat with somebody was to have relationship with them. It was more than just, oh, I happen to see you at Del Taco. And, and some of you I see a lot at Del Taco. But um, you think I'm stalking you, but I'm not. <laughs> Eating with someone meant this association that you would protect them against all enemies. It meant relationship. And so for them to say this man receives sinners and eats with them, including the tax collectors, they are pointing out to Jesus, you are sinning. And that's the accusation here. You are sinning because you're associating with other sinners. You're accepting them. You're eating with them. How dare you? You're not good, righteous people like us. And so they're grumbling about this. They're frustrated. That word for grumbling is the same that's used in the, the Greek copy of the Old Testament for the children of Israel. Remember? Every time something would happen, they'd grumble against what God would do. And so there, there's some, some parallels there. These Pharisees are grumbling over this. Now, Jesus, as he's on his way to the cross, he, we've just been talking about wholehearted obedience and wholehearted devotion to God. He's showing what that means. He says, to be my disciple, you have my heart. You, you have to have the heart of the Father. And his heart is for the lost to come to him. But the Pharisees had gotten so trapped by their rules and rituals and requirements that they had lost the heart. They were trying to externally obey without a love for Christ, without a love for what God loved. And so they really didn't care if anyone else came into the family. They didn't really, unless they were good people, unless they were of the upper class. But to, to even talk to these sinners and tax collectors... Oh, no, that's a step too far. They would never be spiritual. They could never turn to Christ. And so Jesus takes these two verses and addresses it with the three parables that follow. One of the, the, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the prodigal sons. And, and we sometimes take these, and they're wonderful parables, and we can take them in isolation, especially the prodigal sons, the lost sons. But we have to remember all of these are are answering this situation where people are upset that Jesus is trying to save the lost. That's the picture here. And where we might say, oh, that would never be us. But how actively do we pursue the lost? How do do we ever jump to conclusions when we see someone with, with someone that we know isn't saved and a sinner? Oh man, bad company corrupts good morals. And that's true. It's in 1 Corinthians. But do they have an intention of reaching them for Christ? And so Jesus is going to confront, do we have the heart of the Father? And so we, we look at these two verses and we go from here and we take all of the parables. The situation, Jesus is intentionally connecting with the lost and that's a problem to them. So then Jesus answers. In the first two parables, the lost sheep and the coin, we're going to take together. They're, they're what we would call mirror parables where they're saying really the same thing. Some of the wording's the same. They're parallel to each other. And Jesus is going to pile on illustration after illustration after illustration here to make his point. It's that important. And so we get to the lost sheep and the coin. And the point of these is God is an actively pursuing 
and jubilantly celebrating God. God is an actively pursuing and jubilantly celebrating God. And we'll look at both parables and then draw some lessons from both because they're together and then we'll, we'll go to the climactic parable and the prodigal sons. But as we go through all three of these parables, look for four parts. And, and all of them have four parts except the very last part of the last parable, which is intentional. They all deal with something that's lost, someone searching for what was lost, the lost thing being found, and then the response of rejoicing because it was found. And that's the parallel of every one of these stories as Jesus tries to answer their, their grumbling, why would you care about the lost? Why would you spend your time doing this? Maybe because it's the best thing we could do with our time if we're disciples of Christ. So we get to verse 3 in the, the parable of the lost sheep. So he told them this parable, and that's used to represent actually all three, the, 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 the chunk of parables that are here. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And so he sets up a story that they would have seen on the hills every day. There were shepherds all the time. And the shepherd has a hundred sheep, and that's a normal to a large-sized herd somewhere there. And, and probably the shepherd wasn't alone. There were probably, they usually worked in pairs or you had other shepherds around. And... He's counting maybe at the end of the night as they're coming into the fold or as as they're going into the open area where it's a little safer. He's counting 98, 99, and one's missing. And one is missing. And, and, And so Jesus says, which of you as good shepherds wouldn't go find that one? You're responsible for 100. Let's go get 100. And so it says you'll leave the 99 in the open country. Now, Now, the question there is, is this irresponsible is he leaving the 99 to die no probably with a fellow shepherd there but also when you get out of some of the rough country to the open country there's some safety there they would stay there and and so this definitely is not saying the 99 aren't valued but he will drop everything and he will take his time and effort and actively go seek that one and what a picture of a shepherd In fact, one one author, and I really loved this point of view, said, what would it say to the 99 if he didn't go seek the one? Picture this. I use my kids as as examples today. I have three kids. And and if one's lost, what would it say to the other two if I was like, huh? Easy come, easy go. (laughs) Do you see the point? It says something about safety and security and love to the other 99 as well that he would go find the one. It said something to Mark that I would be frantically rushing around and looking for Jeffrey. It said, I love you all. I'm willing to do anything to seek you all. And so rather than seeing this as, oh, he's abandoning the 99, no, he's actually showing love to the whole whole herd, to the whole flock, sorry, whatever you call a bunch of sheep together. (laughs) And, and that love and that care we're going to see throughout all the parables for both the lost and those that are still there. And so he goes to seek the lost. This sheep has wandered off in rough terrain. And to go seek the, the, the lost in this would be climbing over rough terrain and down gulches in this rocky, difficult area. An area where there would be wild predators. The sheep could be devoured at any time could starve, but the shepherd cares and goes after it. 
And then you see found in verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. What a great picture. He finds the sheep. And the sheep may be injured, but whatever it is, he carries the sheep back to the flock. Herd. Flock. Flock. Let's go flock. I have a picture here of a sculpture that actually really accurately depicts how a shepherd would have held his sheep. They always put their their stomach against the back of their neck, brought their their feet together. They could hold all four feet with one hand. That way you could climb and steady yourself with the other. But what a great picture of what Christ does for us when he finds us. He takes us on his shoulders and he carries us to safety because he's the shepherd and we're the sheep. Oh, some of us need to hear that this morning. Some of you are going through some really tough times. And you, and, and you feel like a, a sheep that has lost their way or that is going through circumstances you can't, can't fathom. Your father, the shepherd, wants to carry you like this back to the flock. Isaiah 40 verse 11 says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Jesus is trying to show the Pharisees a tender care that, that it's, it's, it's actively seeking and pursuing, but because of love and because of compassion and this care that when we are found, so many of our songs this morning were talking about I was dead and now I'm alive or I was lost and now I'm found. And they talked about Jesus seeking us and pursuing us. But the story doesn't stop there in verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me! Yes! For I have found my sheep that was lost. Now chances are you don't throw a neighborhood block party when you find your keys. But this is a big deal. He found his sheep. And and this quite possibly was a community herd, so this would have affected everyone in the community. But he brings people together because he is so excited that, that he is willing to rejoice. So many times what we're willing to rejoice in exposes our values. And so this tells us his care for that sheep, his care for that flock. And Jesus, just to make sure we get, get it the first pass, we get the message. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's a little dig there, a little bit of, of sarcastic humor. Um, Because the 99 righteous persons represented the Pharisees. And in your notes, I have a chart there with each story, and you can put what they represent. The the lost sheep represents the the sinners and the tax collectors that he was talking to. The the shepherd is God and and is Jesus, that he goes and, and pursues them. But the 99 that thought they were righteous, that thought they weren't lost, that represented the Pharisees that were there. And so Jesus gets that little dig in. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who realizes he needs to repent and turns to God than for 99 who who need no repentance. A little bit tongue-in-cheek there. But what you see there, the bigger point is there's a party in heaven when someone comes to Christ. Salvation is that important. It's that incredible. It's that joyous that the angels in heaven are are amazed and they throw a party. They rejoice whenever anyone comes to Christ. In this room, we've caused at least 150 parties in heaven. That's pretty cool to think about. And that is the level of importance that salvation and finding the lost is to God and is to Christ. And so our call is to rejoice alongside. Do we have that same level of rejoicing? 
And so Jesus says, here, let me tell you another story. Just in case you didn't get that one, well, let's, let's do two more. But Okay, the next one is the lost coin, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And, and a silver coin was a drachma of the time, which was about one day's wages. And so these ten silver coins would have been what she had for the family for a couple of weeks. And so to lose one would have been serious business. So she loses a coin. And, and the, the houses of the time, they didn't have our nice carpeted floors or tile floors. It was either dirt or just rough-hewn stone put together. Now, if you put a bunch of just rough stones together, what do you have in between them? You have cracks. You have deep cracks and dark cracks. The houses also had very little windows, possibly none, possibly some tiny windows. So it's hard to see. I think I put a picture up of um, a house and, and looking. Maybe I didn't. No? Okay, never mind. That picture isn't there. Um, but picture this dark house. And what you have is this woman who frantically, or in, frantically but intently, is looking for this coin. She's sweeping it. She has to light a lamp to see in the cracks. She's seeking diligently until she finds it. And again, here the woman represents God. And his seeking those that are lost, those that have not come to him. The lost coin represents the sinners. The other nine still safely tucked in the bag represents the Pharisees. And she finds this one, and and just like the story before in verse 9, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me! I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, in the same ending, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Over one sinner who repents. And we see two mirror parables. And and Luke often tells parables and matching pairs. Jesus did in this kind. And what I mean by that is the first one is of an outdoor man. The second one is an indoor woman. And he's using this to be inclusive and say, this applies to all of us and, and help draw them into the story. But there is a relentless pursuit and there is a rejoicing when it is found. We have a God who actively pursues us, but then jubilantly celebrates when we are found. That is the nature of our God. You know, we, we were looking through the house, and, and we, we lose a lot of things in our house. And Susie and now Alicia as well are the finder of all things. And, and it is great. And um, one, of, one of my kids lost a book light um, last week. And they were, were doing the this, this summer reading program in the library. And, and so they're, they're looking for this book light so they can read as they go to sleep. And we can't find it. And, and I search with them. And I search everywhere I know to search and couldn't find it. And um, after 10 seconds of looking, then we gave up. And uh, <laughs> the next day, I get a call. And Susie's like, we found it. There's joy. And it turns out it was in a bag that we took on vacation with us six months ago that had never gotten unpacked. How did she find that? I, I don't know, but she did, and, and there's a great joy, and it's being used every night. But, but it's this searching and finding, the joy of finding that we see in these parables that we see in, in our Father. And, and it, the first lessons we see from these two parables, and they're going to be repeated in the third parable, is first, God is actively and intentionally seeking the lost. 
God is actively and intentionally seeking the lost. If you don't know Him, let Him find you. There's a joy in finding, but there's also a joy in being found. And we're going to see that with with the first son in the next parable. Notice in both of these parables, who's doing the seeking? A little bit of theology here. We can't save ourselves. There's nothing I can do to ever earn my way into heaven. The coin wasn't on the floor going, Here am I! Find me! The, the, the sheep was stuck somewhere far away where the, the, it couldn't get back to the shepherd. But in both stories, God is doing the seeking. He is the one pursuing. He is actively seeking out those to be saved. He takes the initiative because we can't. Today, if you've never experienced the love of God, the pursuit of God, today's the day to give in to that, to accept that, to see the joy of being found. So God is actively and intentionally seeking the lost. Second, as ambassadors and disciples, we're to do the same. It's a simple application. God seeks, so should we. And and that's our call. We're We're to bring people the gospel. How often do we intentionally seek out people that need Christ? This is why we have the people we're praying for, our ones. You know, it, it can be so tempting to watch the news and to look at the world around us and, say, and, and just want to withdraw into our own families or withdraw into our own safe places and say, no, I don't want my kids to experience this yucky world. That's not the heart of God. That, that's the heart of a protective parent. I get that. But it's not the heart of God. Those holy huddles that we have when we only get together with each other and never go outside of that and seek the lost. Those are challenged by these stories. Those are challenged by Jesus' actions. And when we don't do that, we're more like the Pharisees than the lost coins. We're more like the ones saying, why would you do that? Makes no sense. We're to do the same as ambassadors and disciples. And then finally, just as God celebrates letter C, we need to celebrate together with great joy when someone comes to Christ or takes steps of discipleship. I love baptisms here. One of the things I love about baptisms is how excited the church family gets after hearing the testimony and watching someone get baptized. And there's cheering and sometimes some whistles. That is great. It's appropriate. It's right. It matches what's happening in heaven when someone comes to Christ. Good job. We celebrate together. And so we should celebrate every time someone comes to Christ because the lost has been found. But it's not just a coin. A soul that was lost has been found and will be with Christ for eternity. God is active, and actively pursuing and jubilantly celebrating God and so we should be. That's the point of the morning. We're going to see that play out several times. The next parable, the two lost sons or... The, the prodigal sons, two sins, same lavish grace. Two sins, same lavish grace. And we have to understand this story, not just about the son that, that is wayward that goes away. The story is actually more about the son that stays. Remember, what, what situation is this answering? The Pharisees that said, why are you going after the lost? This story is about the older brother, not so much the younger brother. Now, there's lessons from both. But Jesus is confronting the heart of the Pharisees. God has gone to great lengths to give grace and to restore us from being lost in our sin and restore us to relationship with him. 
So this is the culminating story that Jesus uses to just drive the knife into the heart a little bit more, to convict and to say, this is what your heart should be. In verse 11, you're going to see the same sequence. You're going to see something that's lost, someone searching. You're going to see them being found and the rejoicing that happens because Jesus is, is making the sequence over and over to say we should seek the lost and we should accept and rejoice when they are found. In verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he, being the father, divided his property between them. Now, there's a whole lot of cultural things happening here that, we, that just help us understand this parable. We can, we can get it without it, but the, they can add some, some richness to this. But the, the older son typically would get two-thirds of the inheritance because the oldest got a double share. So in this case, two-thirds would go to the older son. A third would go to the younger son. Now, to ask for your inheritance early was unheard of. In fact, it was insulting. It was embarrassing. It was something you just didn't do. It was akin, and, and many of the writers said, it really was saying, I hope you die. So it would be like if I went to my parents, who are here this morning, and said, you know what? I'd really like my share of the inheritance. Could you just go ahead and die? Now, now some of you are, are wondering if things are okay between us. No, we're good. It's not what I'm actually saying. Um, but that is what the son did. And it was, it was that insulting. Do you get the importance of that? Do you get the significance of that? He's like, I just want my money. I just want what I want. I hope you die. Now, the dad here had every right to just shut this son down and to, to bring the hammer and to discipline him and say, oh, yeah? This is what's going to actually happen. You're going to be making bricks or in the fields or whatever. But, but it's amazing to see how the father responds. Now, this young man doesn't look like he's married, so he's probably single, probably in his late teens. And, and he thinks, he, he has these dreams of what life would be like if he could just get out of the house, if he could just get away from family responsibilities, dreams of travel and, and spending whatever he wanted in a big house and, and he's putting his dream above family. He, he's putting his hopes, his wants, himself above family because this would break his father's heart. He's choosing money and what he wants over commitment to family because he's walking out on his commitment to family. It says, Father, give me a share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided, the father divided the property between them. And so he arranged which part was the older brothers, which part was the younger brothers. With a heavy heart, but he did it. And in verse 13, it says, Not many days later, the son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And, and, and again, the wording there, we're like, oh, he got together all he had. The, the Greek is, is very specific. The wording there is he got together all of these things and he turned them into cash as fast as he could. He liquidated a third of the family estate so he could do what he wanted. That doesn't just affect him, by the way. That affects the whole family because now that those cows, that property is all gone. And in fact, it says he did it hastily. He did it in, in not many days. And so he's not trying to get the best deal. He's just getting rid of it at rock bottom prices. This is a fire sale. The neighbors are probably, yeah. We get some stuff because his dream of independence, of doing what he wanted, superseded wisdom. 
and superseded what was true. And so he's just going that direction. There's no stopping him. He gathered all he had, turned it into cash, and he's harming the family. Another part of that is even the phrase that he, he got rid of all he had. He's breaking ties. He's leaving the family, not intending to come back. I want to do what I want to do. And we would expect, and the Pharisees would have expected, the next statement to be, and the father stopped him. Or actually, the older brother had the responsibility of reconciling as well. The older brother should have tried to stop him. But the father here lets him go. And there's a lesson here. There's a lesson of how God treats us. If we are intent on going our own way, if we are intent on following a path of sinfulness, the Father will let us. He'll let us. He will not force you to come to Him. And we see that in the Father here. He's like, okay. If that's what you really want, and He knows what's going to happen, but if that's what you really want, okay. And, and, And I think of that even today, I know moms and dads, sometimes we watch our kids make stupid mistakes. And sometimes we watch them make decisions that we wouldn't make. And there is a point that after input and after after we've done what we can, there's a point where we need to let it go and trust God. And trust that God will use the circumstances that they're going to get into to teach lessons. Moms, dads, we, we protect our kids far too long. And we shield them from consequences far too young, long, especially in the teen years. And we may be shielding them from the very consequences of their actions that will teach them and draw them back to God. Our protection sometimes might keep them from a relationship with God. And that's hard. My kids are almost teens. And I want to protect them with every fiber of my body. But God didn't ask us to be controlling parents. Because he's not a controlling father. He asked us, he asks us to love and to show the truth and let him work in the heart of our kids. So we get to to the end of verse 13. We see what happened. Took a journey into a far country. He goes out of Israel, out of the land, goes somewhere, we don't know where it was, but somewhere far away, and he squandered his property in reckless living. It's a quick statement. But it basically means wild extravagance. He's spending, the word there is a scattering of wealth. He's just buying this and spending here and throwing this party. Probably has a lot of friends because of this, right? People that are throwing a lot of parties and and buying a lot of stuff tend to attract a lot of people. So he's like, yes, I have the life I should have had if dad wasn't keeping me down at home. And he squanders it all and it's gone. This is actually where we get the phrase, the prodigal son. Because prodigal, it doesn't mean to wander away and come back. Prodigal means to squander or to be reckless with what we have. And so prodigal son is referring to squandering and wasting what the gift that was given to him, the wealth that was given to him. And the question here that Jesus is setting this up and all of them are like, well, of course that's wrong. This guy's, this is an evil son. Will these things satisfy? Will the better job satisfy? Will the nicer car, the bigger house, the better vacation? 
No, those things won't satisfy. We're seeking to fill, fill ourselves and fulfill ourselves with something other than God. And the son is looking for his fulfillment outside of the father. But those things don't last. And in verse 14, the bill comes due. And when he had spent everything, so the money's gone, happens quicker than you, than you think, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so now that the money's gone, by some coincidence, and Jesus is telling the story here, but there's a famine in the land, and so it, 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 it exposes the need, it magnifies the need. He has no money, no food, and, and the land's in trouble. And at that point, God is using circumstances to drive him back to truth. He's using his need to teach him. Don't sometimes we have to hit the bottom before we'll turn to God? I wish that wasn't true. I wish we turned to God first. But in this case, he's hitting the bottom. His dad is letting him hit the bottom. Not satisfying those needs, but letting him feel the results of his his decision. 15, we see how bad it gets. So he went out and hired himself out to to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. This would have been one of the worst jobs imaginable for for someone that was raised in the Jewish culture, for a Jew. Pigs were were unclean. They were an animal that that defiled you. And he is out there caring for the pigs and cleaning up their, their excrement and feeding them the slop. That's what he's trying to do. To, to survive. No honorable Jew would do this. Some have thought that maybe even the guy was trying to get him to not take the job by offering him one he would never take. But things were so desperate, he took it. Verse 16, we see just again how, how bad it is. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Part of the pig slop at the time was these carob pods. And they're a hard pod, and we do have a picture of those. It's a hard... And we think carob is sort of a chocolate substitute. That's after it's been processed. The, the human's digestive system can't even digest these. But they're given to the pigs, and the pigs can digest them. And it says he's longing for even those, because that just looks scrumptious, doesn't it? That's right up there with a, a prime rib steak and um, maybe some mashed potatoes. and no. See the depth of where he was at. And no one gave him anything. At this point, not only does he wish he could eat this, he has nothing, but none of the friends that were there when he had money are there anymore. They've all left. He has no hope. Everyone's deserted him. One rabbinic saying says, when Israelites are reduced to carob pods, then they repent. It's very appropriate because in verse 17, we see a change of heart, a change of heart that starts as he reflects where he is. He's looking around and looking at this and starts to think, was this worth it? My, my, my father's servants are even getting food in verse 17. But when he came to himself, uh, came to his senses might be how we would word that today. He said, how many of my father's hired servants, servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Treat me as one of your hired servants. And we see a change of heart here. Some have thought, well, maybe this is manipulating dad. I I don't think you can say that with how 17 starts where it's, it's a change of heart. He came to himself. I think this represents a genuine heart, seeds of repentance. Because he, he says a couple things that are just really powerful in an apology. He says, I have sinned. A good apology says, I was wrong, right? And he, he not only says, I've sinned against my father, because I've sinned against God. And I've sinned against my father. And so he, God has used hardship to strip away his pride and his sin. And he says, I'm going to go back. And he's rehearsing this speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I don't deserve the same place. In fact, just treat me as one of your hired servants. And and so he's at the lowest of lows. He's broken and he's ready to go back. Now, there's a problem with going back. One of the the Jewish customs of the time, and, and this was practiced at the time, if you lost your inheritance, if you took your inheritance or your family's money and you lost it among the Gentiles and returned home, then, then that was something to be punished by the community. And as you came into town, they would break a large pot in front of you. I don't know the significance of the pot, but they'd break the large pot in front of you, and that represented cutting you off from the town. And you were disowned by the town and by the family, and you weren't allowed to come in. And so this, this son has this barrier to coming in, but he still says, I'm going to go. And, and, it, and part of what we see as repentance is verse 20. He arose and came to his father. He did it. He didn't just sit there and say, I'm just really sorry. He actually got up and acted on, on his, his repentance. And he gets up and goes to the father. And what would have been expected was this pot breaking, this disowning, the father that's angry, the father that is punishing. And in verse 20, we see the pursuit. We see the searching. We've seen the loss. Now we see the searching. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What a masterfully told story to illustrate the heart of the father. Because what this means is the father was looking. The father, even though he didn't go to the faraway land, he was still pursuing by looking and he was ready to go. And as soon as he sees his son and he knows his son's coming, he goes and he runs to him and he gives him love and acceptance. Now, for a Middle Eastern older man to run was humiliating. You didn't run. You walked slowly and dignified. Something that's appropriate to a man of your position. And, and in fact, you didn't run. The, the word here is having a race or chasing. You just didn't do, do that because that's what kids did. Dad didn't care. He's like, I am running to my son. I love him. I've been looking for him. I'm pursuing him. We will be restored. Now, probably there's some practicality of that too to, to get there and show acceptance before this whole ritual of cutting him off. He's protecting his son by doing this. But we see... As the father finds the son, this lavish grace and compassion, this this overwhelming grace, it says he felt compassion, a deep, deep emotion for his son. He ran, he embraced him and kissed him. He was willing to be humiliated to restore his son. Just as Jesus was willing to be humiliated 
and die on the cross and take our shame and take the punishment for our sin to restore us to the Father. God is doing the pursuing and the restoring here. It goes on, and the son begins his speech that he's rehearsed and probably said over and over on his way there. He says, Father, and just that he would use the word father is significant. He uses a title of respect. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he throws himself at the mercy of the father. Now, whether the dad interrupted him or the son chose to cut off the speech there because he was overwhelmed with repentance, this is such a precious moment because the, the, the father is having none of this idea that he's just a servant now. He's having none of this idea that he can't be a son. And we see that with this beautiful, unfathomable restoration. The father restores him. He's, he's given him this lavish love that is undeserved. He's chased him. He's pursued him. He's been, as some would say, reckless with his love. To us, it seems that way. And that's why we get the song, Reckless Love, and, and the, the, the book, The Prodigal God, The Reckless God. The, the father is just putting all out to restore this relationship. And we see that here in the next verses. The father said to his servants, quickly, quickly bring the best robe, which is probably his best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, which was the signet ring for the family and represented the authority of the family that he is restored as a son. And shoes on his feet. See, servants went barefoot. Sons never went barefoot. The, the, the imagery here is loaded of God, the father here, coming and restoring entirely the son to his position. What was lost is now found. And there is great joy because it's found. He goes on, says, bring the fatted calf and kill it. That, that cow we had out there that we've been saving for a great occasion and feeding it the best food to get the best meat, that's the one we're going to use. Kill that baby. Let's have, some, let's have a barbecue. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they begin to celebrate. And so we see the first son was lost and his sin. And we see the father's response of pursuing and the son is found and there is great joy and they're celebrating as there should be. But then we get to the older son. Now, now tell me, how many of you, if you were the older sibling that had done everything right, wouldn't be a little miffed at this? And be, before we come down too hard on the older son, I've seen this at work in, in my family and in other families. The, the good one would, would feel like this isn't fair, right? This isn't right. And so we read that, and now Jesus gets to his point. And, and number four in your notes is this is the cutoff ending. The cycle of lost, searching, found, and rejoicing only has the first two in the story. It doesn't have found and rejoicing. It leaves it hanging for us to decide for ourselves what our response will be. How will we respond to the lost and the found? And so we get to the older brother, which represents the Pharisees, the, the, the ones that think they're righteous, that have done everything right. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near the house, so it gets to the end of the evening, and he's out in the field, probably supervising the workers out there because this was a family with some means. He's coming close to the house and he hears music and dancing. He's like, what's up? What's going on? 
And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he, being the servant, said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. He accepted him. He's part of the family again. Rejoice! And so the older brother rejoiced and they lived happily ever after. No. No. And here we see that the older brother was just as lost. He just was lost in close proximity because he also wasn't following the heart of the father. He also was displeasing the father and was acting in a hateful way toward the father because it says he was angry in verse 28. He was angry and refused to go in. And those words are just loaded. See, whenever you had guests over, it was expected that your sons and especially the eldest son came in and greeted the guests. To not do that was an insult to the host, his dad. To have this argument that they're about to have in front of the guests, because this is probably in the courtyard, and the guests are there, the kids are there, to have this in front of the guests is a slap in the face of the dad. But the older brother's angry. He's ticked off. He's going to have no more of this. It's time for him to have his say. He refuses to go in. I'm not having a part of that. And we see the anger that has swelled into bitterness that has boiled over probably something that's been festering for a long time every day as he sees dad looking for little brother. Every day as he sees dad looking at the entrance of the town, is today going to be the day he comes? And the older son's like, I'm here. I'm the one that's good. I'm the one that's obeying. Basically, the son was telling the dad, he was angry at the dad because the dad was accepting a sinner into his house and eating with him. Do you catch that? The dad's doing what the Pharisees were ticked about in verses 1 and 2. And they would have caught the connection because the wording is so similar. And they'd be standing there like, "Uh uh-oh, he's talking about us now. And they probably were saying, well, he has a right to be angry. He refused to go in. And and, and in in that moment, think about it, the older brother is violating the two greatest commands too. He's refusing to love God, which the father represents, to honor him by going in. And he's refusing to love others by not caring and accepting and rejoicing that the loss has been found. And so this, he is just as selfish, just as self-centered. His pride is showing through. His self-righteousness is showing through as he's looking down on someone else that is somehow less than him. But catch the response of the father, end of 28. His father came out and entreated him. Again, the father could have come down on him with the hammer. He does the same thing. He shows grace and love and reaches out to, to the son that's still there. And says, son, come in. This isn't right. I love you too. And he's, he's entreating him and reaching out to him, even though the pride of the son is, is thinking that he's greater than the father and knows better than the father. And in 29, instead of found and instead of that pursuit accepted, we see the pursuit rejected. But he answered his father, look, look, come on, dad. I have served you this many years. 
and I never disobeyed your command. Again, he's focusing on the external commands, not the heart. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat, let alone the fattened calf. I didn't even get a little kid. How dare you? This isn't right. It isn't fair. Do you get the tone? And he's just tearing his dad up and down here. And then he goes on. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, but this son of yours, he can't even bring himself to call him his brother. This son of yours, maybe as married people we say, your child, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, which we don't even know. He's he's quite possibly just making up more salacious details of the story. Who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed with the fattened calf for him? Are you crazy? This is ridiculous. And we see a self-righteous resentment. We see a self-centered resentment. He's getting something I'm not. He's getting something I deserve. See, the older son was serving his father for reward, not out of love, not out of desire for the the father. In his little speech here, we see no concern for the brother. We see no joy that he's back. In fact, the brother coming back would have been a threat for the older brother. See, while he's away, when when you have a wayward sibling, it makes you look a lot better, right? And so that's the bad son. I'm the good son. And so his, his reputation is good while he's gone. He gets the attention because he's the only one there. But more importantly, what if dad cuts him back into the inheritance? Now you're messing with my future, dad. See, he's just as prodigal. And by prodigal, we said wasteful or, or, or reckless with something. He's wasting the father's love and grace. He's wasting the opportunities that were there. And the father's response in 31 and 32. And he said to him, the father's talking to the son. Son, and the wording there is, oh, my dear son. And you see his love and compassion still coming through when it's so undeserved. Should have struck him dead right there. Son, my dear son, you're always with me. You've been here in my joy this whole time. Don't you see how that's a good thing? In fact, all that is mine is yours. Everything you see is yours now. When I die, it's all yours. It's it's not getting split. It is fitting or necessary to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And we see the sin of the brother. He's lost. We see the searching from the father, entreating him. And the story ends. And we don't know how the older brother responds. Did the older brother storm off and have a hissy fit in some corner somewhere? Or did the older brother repent and go in and enjoy the love and the joy of his father? We don't know. And Jesus leaves it. He he does this sequence. This is the fourth time of this sequence. And he leaves it here because he's looking at the Pharisees saying, what is your choice? Are you people like the older brother? Are you people like the father? And it's the same question for us, right? Are we a church of the older brother or a church of the father? Do we have the father's heart? Do we see that this is an invitation to accept and pursue the lost and be joyous when they come without self-righteousness, without thinking we're better? 
See, so many times we read this story and, and we think of ourselves as the younger brother. And the, the first thought I have there is that sometimes we're both brothers. Sometimes we're the younger, sometimes we're the older. And absolutely, we are lost. We are in our sin. We need Christ and repent. But how often are we the older brother? This is very standoffish when someone that looks a little unsavory comes into church. Or when we pass by someone that maybe smells a little funny and we're not sure we can talk to them. Or maybe the neighbor that we're trying to reach that just had the the all-out party last night and there's beer bottles all over the front lawn. What would happen if you went and helped pick up the, helped them clean up? That's pursuing the lost. Or do we look down our noses at each other and say, well, that person is sinning in that way and that person is sinning in that way and that person is taking what I want and, and we get so into ourselves and so into our pride that I fear that I am more like the older brother than the younger. And I fear that the longer we're believers, that's the tendency. We can be like the Pharisees. And as I read the gospel, I, I, I am ashamed to say I find myself identifying with the Pharisees far more than any other character. And I need to remember that God's lavish love is pursuing me and seeking me. And, and he is rejoicing when I come to him. Just as he does for every lost person. Every lost person. Does our heart match the father? See, his rebuke of the older son is your heart's not the father's. You don't have my heart. That's not from the father. And he rebukes him. There's some other questions that come out of this. Um, One to the older brother would be, who do you need to reconcile with? When we keep people at arm's length in, in the, the church family, no matter what they've done, when we don't allow reconciliation to happen, when we're not willing to forgive, we don't have the heart of the Father. We have the heart of self. Wearsby wrote, if we are out of fellowship with God, we cannot be in fellowship with our brothers and sisters. And conversely, if we harbor an unforgiving attitude toward others, we cannot be in communion with God. And one of the lessons out of this is where am I at with my brothers and sisters in Christ? And I've already mentioned the other thought there, trust as we respond in unfathomable love to a wayward child. Trust as we respond in unfathomable love to a wayward child. In conclusion, we come back to where it started. God loves sinners. He calls them to repentance. His grace goes to extraordinary lengths to bring them back. And his joy is unbounded when the lost are found. God pursues the lost out of love. He goes to great lengths to do it and he rejoices when they are found and not only rejoices, but accepts them and brings them in. And so should we. Like God, we should go to extraordinary lengths to pursue the lost and welcome them with joy when they turn to Christ. How do we respond to the lost? We relentlessly pursue them. How do we respond to the found? No matter whether they're in our own class or not, we rejoice with them and accept them. That's the heart of the Father. So who are you going to seek this week? Who are you going to pursue? And who are you going to celebrate and make sure knows they're part of the family? That's the questions that Jesus is asking the Pharisees. How far would the Father go to pursue you? He'd send His Son to die on the cross when He didn't have to, to pay the price and the penalty for our sin so we could be part of the family and adopted into the family. Don't miss that. Today, if you've never accepted Christ, 
The Father's pursuing you. He's chasing you. He's done everything He can to give you salvation. But you have to accept it. You have to respond like the younger brother did, the older brother didn't. We don't know. But respond and say, Lord, I make you Lord of my life. I accept you. I repent of my sin. And I come into your family. Let's pray together as we close. Lord God, you pursue us so relentlessly. Lord, help us to respond, to come to you. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray today would be the day that they would give their life to you, that they would repent and say, this isn't working. But my father wants me to have joy in his household. Lord, I pray we'd give our lives to you. Lord, I also pray for us as a church that we would not fall into the trap of the older brother and think that we're somehow arrived and mature, but that we would be seeking you and and pursuing others, that we would be your ambassadors and finding ways to share the gospel. And that we as a church would be the most accepting place for someone seeking you or for a new believer to be. Not that we're accepting sinful behavior, but we're accepting them as made in the image of God and finding ways to rejoice together. Lord, help us to rejoice in what's important, souls coming to you. Thank you for your word, for your example. In Jesus' name, amen.